Well, good morning, family. I'm so happy that this day has finally come. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <clears throat> um, thank you all. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, worship team, thank you for this morning. Wonderful worship. And uh, Mark and Brian, thank you guys for your words this morning. That was really great. Um, also, sorry about saying that, hey, my first Sunday was going to be September, and now here I am. So hopefully it's a pleasant surprise, but I'm really excited to get started. And I've been sitting with the Lord and really asking him what he wants me to share with you all. And just to give you a little spoiler alert for every sermon that I'm going to have from here on to infinity, it's all really a sermon in which God first gives to me something that he's convicting me in my life, and this is just me sharing with you my journey and, and what God is teaching me. So I'm going to start with what I think is the most important thing, and we're going to start up this 11-week series called Who I Am, which is all about the I Am, the ever-present one, the Alpha and Omega. It's all about God and who we are in relation to who God is as image bearers. And I asked this painting up here, I'm sure some of you are like, why is that up there? It's because I asked around, and thanks to Devin Dixon for helping me find some artists, I've been trying to find some people to make some pieces for different things I might be talking about with the series. And I asked Ellie Pettis to make something about what I am talking about this week, and she made this really beautiful painting um, there's a lot of significance behind it. The black part of it is kind of like the void before God created, and then God is like the golden triangle in the middle, and then the seas and the land becoming one, and the creation of light. It's just a really awesome piece. And I, if you're an artist, send me an email. I'd love to get in contact with you and see how maybe in the future I, I can incorporate some stuff with you. But we're going to be talking about the most important thing, and that is God. So we're going to be going through the nature and character of God and his abilities and the profound impact that that has on our lives. And Jesus tells us that the greatest command, it's funny, we were just talking, me and Steve were just talking about this. His class is about the greatest command, it sounds like, too. But Jesus tells us the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And if you do a little throwback to Deuteronomy, he throws in strength there, too. A.K.A. love the Lord your God with everything in you. That is the most important thing. And if Jesus says it's the most important thing, I'm going to take him at his word. So this is why I think this is going to be one of the most important series that I could ever do. Because it's, we're talking about the most important thing, and that is God. And this is why love God is such a crucial part of our mission statement. It's the first thing that we say because it's the foundation. It is the baseline for everything else for us. The core pursuit of our lives needs to be nothing else but wanting intimacy with God. So, today we're going to start a little bit by talking about the desire, the pursuit of God, and one of the, that is one of the most important things we could be. One of the, my favorite things, whenever the New Year rolls around, and I'm so bad at this, is watching people set New Year's resolutions. I think I have failed on like all of the ones I've ever set. I have been so bad at them. And, and a lot of us, I would say most of us, would probably fall into that camp where we set a resolution and, you know, it doesn't really pan out the way we want it to. A good example of this, I'm somebody who is like, you know what, I'm going to eat healthier, so I'm going to eat a salad every day. So I buy all these 
fresh vegetables, and I make some, some ballin' salads. They're pretty good. And then eventually, a few days in, I'm like, okay, you know, I need to spruce this up a little bit. So I start adding some stuff to make it not that healthy, like a lot more dressing. Then you start adding bacon bits. And then you start adding a lot more other types of meat. And then you start realizing the thing I actually like about this salad is the meat. So then you order meat with a side salad. And then at some point, you're like, this side salad's not doing anything for me nutritionally, so I'm just going to replace it with mashed potatoes and gravy and then have ice cream for dessert. And then you're back to square one, right? Or take another resolution, one that a lot of people tend to fail at. I myself have failed at this before, which is reading through the Bible in a year. We, we get to Genesis. We go through it. It's like, yeah, this is great. We get to Exodus, and it's like, yeah, this is, this is mostly pretty good. And then we meet the great resolution killer that is Leviticus. And we say, all right, I'm out. Get them next year. Poor Leviticus doesn't get a lot of love. It's a great, it's a great book. A lot of good stuff in it. But what this is highlighting to me, all these failed resolutions, it makes it clear to me that we have a clash of desires between the things that we think we should want and the things that we truly do want. James K.A. Smith, he's a Christian author, he has a book called You Are What You Love, and he argues in this book that humans are fundamentally wired to follow or chase after the things they love or the things that they desire more so than the things that we may think are right or the things that we believe. For example, as a Christian, I know how I ought to be living. I know I need to be somebody who is radically serving other people. I know I need to be somebody who is more generous with my money. I know I should stop sinning and keep repeating the same sins that I do, but I don't do what I want to do. It's starting to sound a lot like Paul in Romans 7 now, right? We may not truly love the things that we think we love. The things that are automatic to us oftentimes will trump over the things that we might think we should be doing. And the reason for that is because God created us to be lovers. We were made in God's image to love and worship him, to share in such a close intimacy with God that we could actually walk and talk with God in the garden. I mean, we were created for this. We were created to love. And our propensity to love, it's this automatic thing. It's like second nature. It's like breathing. You don't have to think about it. Your heart is just going to naturally want or desire things. That's what's going to happen. And all of the desires that we have, they get shaped by the things that we do. They get shaped by our habits. Our actions, oftentimes, will fight against intimacy with God. Like, it's really hard for us to have intimacy with God and a deep relationship with him whenever we can't even make time for him in our life. Whenever 90% of our thoughts are around money or we're in financial stress, it's hard to have intimacy with God whenever any moment you're by yourself, you immediately go watch Netflix or scroll on your smartphone. And I'm not saying any of this to talk down to y'all. This is all stuff I'm pulling from my life. We do this. And these habits or actions, they are different forms of worship. And these different worship routines, they create in us improper desires if it's not worshiping the right thing. For example, let's take... Everyone's favorite addiction these days are smartphones. I'm not talking, I mean, some of y'all, y'all might be using this for the best of things. You might be every day just 
reading through scripture, doing daily devotionals. I'm going to wager most of us probably don't use our smartphones for that. But my problem that I'm talking about is it's not so much about the content that's on these phones. It's about what the habit of constantly pulling this out and going to it, what it's doing to us, how it's shaping our character. Because whenever I'm doing it constantly, it could be that the desires that are being cultivated in me from continually going to this are that I should never be bored, I should always have immediate gratification, and that the world kind of revolves around me because these things are tailored to fit everything that you want and all the things that you like. Can you see, can you begin to see a little bit how the things that we worship can shape us? Or maybe how our worship can actually make God into our own image. It's amazing how God tends to agree with everything that I think and tends to affirm everything that I do. I don't know if any of y'all have thought that's kind of funny to see in other people's lives, but a lot of times that's just kind of how we think about God. It's like what Voltaire said, in the beginning God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. It's amazing how those who have a, a deep desire to have a lot more material wealth see God as somebody who's there to give them every financial blessing they could ever want. It's amazing how those who have the deepest desire for politics, that God lines up with every single one of their political platforms. We do this all the time, and we have done this since the beginning. I mean, if you go back and you look at the pantheons of gods, whether that's Greek gods, Egyptian gods, whatever, they all made gods after their own desires, their own image. Because it's like, if we're like this, surely the gods are like this too. What we choose to worship or how we spend our time, it creates idols. It creates false images of God in place of the true living God. And I think this is kind of what Jesus has in mind whenever he's talking to the rich young ruler. And little did the bells know this, but whenever they were going through this lesson a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago, um, it was something I was planning on talking about on this Sunday, and I'm happy we did talk about it because it's a text that a lot of times we try to avoid. Like, I don't see very many homemakers putting the story of the rich young ruler on their walls, right? It's not one of those encouraging stories that makes us super excited. If it is one of your favorite ones, come tell me why, because I don't see it. But um, if you would, in Luke 18, that's where we're going to be reading from, Luke 18, verse 18, it says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 19, why do you call me good, Jesus answers. No one is good except God alone. Just to be clear, Jesus isn't saying he is not God here. He's asking the rich young ruler, are you actually making a divine claim about me? Because I know what's in your heart. <laughs> I know what you're holding back. In verse 20, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. So, Ten Commandments type stuff. He says, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Well, there's your encouraging message for today. Um, 
oftentimes, I think Christians, we read this text and we just try to hurry through it. We try to get to the part where it says all things are possible with God so we can like breathe or exhale a little bit. But I think it's important to kind of sit in this tension because a lot of times we don't want to. What we have here with the rich young ruler is that he was not willing to let go of his wealth for Jesus. And we know this is not a universal call for everybody to give over all of their possessions. Because in the very next chapter, we see Zacchaeus give half of his possessions, and it's good enough for salvation to come to his house. So it's not, it's not about all of us need to give over our possessions. The problem that's here is one of priority and idolatry. We need to be very wary of the things that we are putting in the place of God. Or to borrow the language of Jesus, we need to be careful and mindful of where our treasure is. The habits or worship of this rich man illustrated that money was his idol and Jesus was wanting him to cut that out. Because making God the primary desire of our hearts is the most important thing. And through Holy Spirit empowerment, we need to find better worship that reorients those desires to make God the only priority in our life. And whenever I'm saying better worship, I'm not talking about what we're doing on Sundays. I'm not saying we need more Hillsong or more acapella. We're not putting that on you, Mark. What I'm saying is lifestyle worship. How can I glorify God in my actions and, and glorify him above other things that I might be worshiping? Because the first of the Ten Commandments is what? You should have no other gods before me. None. So God is asking for 100% of our hearts. It's not good enough to be like 50%, God, I'm going to give you that. And then the other 50%, I'm going to give to my family. I'm going to give to uh, my politics, entertainment, vacation, whatever else. It's not that. It's not even good enough to give God 99% and keep that 1% back for yourself. Our whole hearts, everything, our core desire Number one priority is to give everything over to God, which is what the rich young ruler was not able to do. And God doesn't command us to have this sort of entire devotion to him because he needs it for his ego or anything. He is a jealous God, and he wants us to be in relationship with him, but that's not it. That's not the point. He's telling us this because this is the only desire in our life that is going to lead us to any true fulfillment. Everything else is going to disappoint. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So in other words, if you keep the priority of your heart to seek and to love and to worship God, then all the other things that you need to take care of in life are going to take care of themselves from the abundant, overflowing love of God. Because it can't help but do that. The love of God is what fuels the love of neighbor and for us to love our spouses and families and community. It starts with this. This is the most important thing. But if we put any desire, even good desires, in the place of that main one, we're going to find out that it's disappointing. Like the writer in Ecclesiastes says, everything is meaningless or a chasing after the wind if God is not paramount, if God is not in the picture. Put another way by Augustine, a church father who lived about 1,600 years ago. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We're never going to be satisfied until we start focusing on the main thing, what we are created for, to know and love God. 
And whenever I say no, God, I'm not talking about rationally knowing God. Because you know some of the people who were the best at rationally knowing God were the Pharisees. I mean, they would have killed it in Bible bulls. They would have done so well. They would have made Church of Christers blush with how much they knew Scripture. But the problem was, though they spent all of their time studying the Scriptures, they didn't really know God. A.W. Tozer has this really good quote that captures what I'm saying here. The modern scientist has lost God amid the wonders of his world. We Christians are in danger of losing God amid the wonders of his word. We have almost forgotten that God is a person and as such can be cultivated as any person can. And by person here, he's not saying that God is human, though Jesus is human. He's saying person in terms of a relational being. God is one that we have relationship with, we have conversations with, we have dialogue with. And what he's hinting at here, whenever he says the quote he did, there's a danger to make Scripture the end of our faith in itself. That if we're saying all that there is to faithfulness is to have this book memorized, we're missing something. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be digging in Scripture. Make sure you hear that very clearly. We should be. We should be tearing up those pages metaphorically, not literally like tearing them out. We should be in Scripture a lot, but fueled by the right end, which is to know and love God, to have intimacy with God, to walk with God. It's not just so that we can know facts about him. That's why Jesus says what he does in John 5, 39. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying we have missed the point if we elevate Scripture as if it's God. We should be using Scripture to help inform who God is. That's the point of Scripture. It's all testifying about who he is, and it's supposed to lead us to deeper intimacy with God. And this is why Jesus says, and what he says uh, in John 17, 3, it says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And I'm not saying... Again, know here is not rational. It's the biblical sense of knowing somebody, which there is a really deep relational intimacy that's meant when I say that. We want to know God so well that we can talk about him as if he's our dearest friend. The pursuit of this relational knowledge of God is really what ultimately leads Moses to say in Exodus 33, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. And in Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Or if we go to Philippians 3, 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. That is some serious language there from Paul. But can you hear the desire from these biblical authors? It's all about the pursuit of God. And seeking relational intimacy with God as our primary desire is what separates a follower from a Pharisee. Any other desire that we have is garbage in comparison. And he's not saying that the desire to love our spouses and our family is a garbage desire. He's saying in comparison to how important this desire to pursuing and loving God is, everything else is rubbish in comparison. 
because it's that important. It is that primary. And the beauty of this pursuit is that we're never going to arrive. And you might be like, whoa, that doesn't sound that beautiful. I'm going to geek out with you guys for a second, okay? Why is there a random math chart? I'll tell you. Are any of y'all familiar with what an asymptote is? Show of hands. Yes, my math nerds unite. Okay, so an asymptote is a line that continually approaches a given curve but does not intersect at any point. So relationship is kind of like that. Like my relationship with my wife, I'm continuing to know her more and more and more. There's, I've been with her for five years, lived with her, I've learned a lot about her, but the thing is, I'm never going to get to a point where I fully arrive, where I fully know everything that there is about Abby. And if I can say that about my wife, how much more can I say that about an infinite, unfathomable God? As C.S. Lewis says in The Last Battle, he says, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I love that quote, because that's, that's what it's all about. He's hinting at the true end for Christians, the thing that we should be striving for, which is perfect, loving union with God and creation forever, where every day it's going to get better and better, and it's never going to grow stale. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we have to look forward to. But in the meantime, maybe our hearts aren't in the place where we're like, yes, God, I want to give you 100% of me. Maybe we're holding back on some stuff. Maybe we really don't want that right now. But maybe we want to want that. So how do we get there? How do we get to the point where we can say, it's you and you only, God? Anything else is rubbish in comparison. Well, first, we need to examine our habits. Remember, habits are really the things that we worship, the things that shape our desires. So we need to ask ourselves the question, what, is the things, what are the things that we do that actually do something to us, that shape our character, that change us or form these improper desires? Or to use the rich young ruler, what is the stuff that we're not giving over to God to give him our 100%? Because before we do any level of surgery or anything like that, we need to first diagnose what the problems are. The second thing is we need to adopt better worship. And again, I'm not talking about what happens on Sundays. I'm talking about lifestyle worship. Because if you think of salvation as if it's some sort of heart transplant, then we need to rehab this new heart. We need to adopt better practices that support a healthy lifestyle and healthy living. So... I remember Brian a couple times the past, in this month, he talked about Romans 12. I love Romans 12. One of my favorite chunks of scripture in the Bible. It is so good. But true and proper worship is being a living sacrifice. It's not necessarily about how good your worship set is on Sunday mornings. It's about how you live your life. It's about asking the question, God, what can I do to bring you glory in everything that I do? And there's a lot of traditional spiritual disciplines that you can be doing to help improve your relationship with God. I mean, prayer, this church is soaked in prayer. Praise God for that, because that is so important. 
I mean, you can be having a conversation with God in your head everywhere you go, treating him like a person because God is a person. And it's really, really helpful to keep that conversation going. Scripture, digging in scripture is really good and really helpful for letting God convict you and talk to you and, and change you. It's so important. And then in our hurried culture, I mean, we run around all the time. We're so busy. We have no breaks. Spending time just in solitude, in silence, and letting God use that space to get to you is really important. Protecting your Sabbath in this rushed world is so important. Those are things we can be doing. But it's not just the traditional stuff. I am convinced, so as long as you are not sinning, you can be worshiping God. It's really just bringing God along with you in everything that you're doing, being mindful of God in every room you step into, asking God, how can I give this time over to you? It's possible. And I'm growing in that. And the last thing is to give yourself grace because this transformation into Christ-likeness is really a process. It takes a lifetime of pursuit, of, of seeking God for it to really, really take shape. And this is why I really love 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I love this, this idea that we are almost leveling up as the Spirit of God keeps working on our lives and chipping away at us to make us into this beautiful final picture of being completely like Jesus and sharing in the same community and the same love that's shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. We get to experience that. And whenever Abby and I were in Italy this summer, there was this, we went through a museum that had a lot of sculptures from Michelangelo. And this one is, they call it the prisoner in stone. They call all of them that are incomplete works of his, the prisoner in stone. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like, that's sermon material. I'm going to be talking about this whenever I talk about sanctification for sure. So this is a really beautiful picture of kind of where we are right now. Right now, we know the stuff we want to do. We know what God is asking of us. We know what God is expecting of us, and we're breaking out of it. We're breaking out of our flesh. We're breaking out of our old self. And God is chipping away at us through the Spirit to become more and more and more like Jesus. And it's this beautiful transition that happens. And though we're probably not going to reach full Christ-likeness in this life, it doesn't mean that we should just wait until we die to start pursuing God intently. Because in this life, right now, church, you can experience an intimacy with God that is so deep that you can't even really fully fathom. And whenever I think about individuals that fit that really well, one of the first people that comes to mind is our brother Albert. Albert loves God so much. And it is evident in the way he lives his life, the way he talks about God. I mean, he is just deep, deeply in love with God. He can barely even talk about God without getting choked up. Because God is that real and that powerful and that beautiful to him. Whenever Gary and I visited him about a week and a half ago, his son Stephen, I believe was the name, he said that Albert lives on the edge of eternity. I loved that language, living on the edge of eternity, because he has this longing in his soul to be with the Lord. 
He wants nothing more than to be in his presence and to call him his friend and to have conversations with him. Like he has this yearning. And the thing is, a lot of us look at that and we're like, man, I wish I could have that. That is attainable for all of you, for all of us. We can have that same level of closeness and intimacy with God that we see in our spiritual heroes like Albert. We can have that. It just takes a lifetime of pursuit, a lifetime of seeking and wanting God with everything in us. And church, can you imagine what would happen if we as a church all had this one desire? If we had the desire of saying, God, let your name be glorified and forget everything else. It's not a matter of if the city of Franklin would change. It's a matter of how great of magnitude would it be. Because whenever people come to really see the goodness of God, they can't help but make a difference in the world. I want to end with this really beautiful prayer from A.W. Tozer that really captures what I've been talking about today. And if you want this to be true in your life, I ask that you open your hearts and lift up this request to the Lord with me. So please, please bow. <clears throat> oh God, I have tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray, so I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where I have wandered for so long. In Jesus' name, amen.